All right, so I got a question for you, Zach. Yeah. What do you think is the strangest transfer in world football, in, in all of history? You're talking about the circumstances around it, talking about the players involved, the clubs, mm. the outcome, just overall, what is like the weirdest transfer? I think I'm going to have to go with Bebe to Manchester United as an overall. Just such a weird transfer. That one was a doozy, and I agree with you to some extent, but... Overall, you're wrong, and I'll tell you why. Because Ian Rush, oh, Ian Rush's transfer from Liverpool to Juventus in summer 1986 is the strangest transfer in all of history. Now, it might not be the strangest thing you've ever heard, but it's definitely the most unique transfer. There will never be another like it for many reasons. So, Well, <laughs> I've certainly heard enough about it, so... I just, so basically, it was definitely. Uh, so we'll start. Everyone knows Ian Rush. Uh, he is Liverpool's all-time number one top goal scorer. He is Wales's mm. number one top goal scorer. Undisputedly, mm-hmm. uh, one of the greatest strikers ever to grace the Premier League, and um, to a lesser degree, Serie A, I guess. But I mean, to really, um, <laughs> to definitely to, to a, a lesser much degree. Lesser degree. I mean, much lesser degree. He's definitely one of the biggest names to ever suit up in Syria, or at least he's one of the biggest names to ever transplant themselves into Syria. I don't know what I'm trying to say, but to properly understand the context, uh, we have to dive into some pretty uh, dark stuff um, just to give the entire transfer context, because this is really what makes it so strange. So um, in the 1985 Champions League final, the tragedy of Heisel Stadium in Brussels, Belgium. So basically, uh, I'm not going to go too deep into it, but basically what happened um, before the match, I didn't know what happened actually before kickoff, but before the match, basically um, in the lead up to the game, um, Belgium historically, or at least at the time, had a lot of Italian immigrants. I actually didn't really know that was the case. There's a lot of people from Italy that lived in Belgium at the time, especially Brussels, and there was a lot of Juventus fans in brussels before the game and um before the game this is when ian rush was still playing for liverpool of course yes of course he was uh liverpool's star striker uh there was some controversy um sort of some you know some old school uefa fifa corruption type of stuff where um people were sort of questioning why the game was played at heisel stadium um it was known to be a terrible stadium it hadn't been maintained properly and that was very clear especially um there were arsenal arsenal played a game there against i forgot what team played in there at the time actually i'm blanking on that um club brugge maybe i don't know what team plays in brussels but anyway um arsenal played some um uefa cup games there they said the stadium was horrible and uh allegedly people only look at this afterwards um because of what happened but um Apparently, UEFA's uh, stadium check before the game only lasted about 30 minutes. They basically looked at the stadium and said, yeah, I guess we could pack this thing to much larger than max capacity. Oh, boy. And uh, and apparently, uh, Liverpool fans were upset because apparently uh, the Camp Nou and Bernabeu were available that day, and they were rumored to be possibly the site of the game but they wanted to do it in brussels i guess you can't play every cup final in the same stadiums being <laughs> san siro bernabeu you know you gotta you gotta change it up a little bit plus belgium doesn't really get very much love 
Um, no, no, they do not. So, so I but, guess I mean the main the main thing was they just really didn't do a proper check of the stadium. Yes, but um, so before the game, uh, fans are filing into the stadium, and because of the large Italian population and the Juventus support in the area, um, it's basically becoming almost like a Juventus home game. It's it's almost like it's not a neutral site because all of the neutral areas where it's like there's the Juventus fan section, there's Liverpool fan section, and there's neutral areas. Um, the neutral areas are basically just extensions of the Juventus fan section. So the stadium's probably 70% Juve, 30% Liverpool. And uh, Liverpool fans are obviously a little ticked off about this. Nothing wrong with that. So before the game, fans are piling into the stadium. And um, in a neutral section... Adjacent to the Liverpool section, there is a temporary chain link fence that they put up to separate the two groups of fans. And um, so no one knows how the argument started, but there was massive arguments between, you know, hundreds of people in the stands. And uh, fans began uh, throwing glass bottles, uh, flares are throwing over, uh, people are throwing lit flares over this chain link fence. And um, obviously this commotion's building, tensions are high, and um, the stadium actually begins to crumble a little bit. So there's literally, after this, you know, tension continues to rise, uh, people begin throwing rocks and bits of concrete out of the stadium below them, and they're throwing it at each other. God. And um, after a certain point, people get so annoyed that... um, some Liverpool fans begin to uh, breach this chain link fence, so they jump over the chain link fence and begin to stampede the Juve fan or the the neutral section. And uh, the Juve fans are on the far opposite, like it's behind one goal, and the Juve fan section, the official fan section, is behind the opposite goal. So they breach into the neutral section, and uh, the stadium then, because of the weight, and the stadium was already very shanty. Um, the bleachers or the, um, the stands that the neutral fans were on, that the Liverpool fans breached, uh, begins to crumble and a concrete barrier collapses. And, um, God, and in this pandemonium, obviously, you know, complete chaos erupts and, um, there's a whole lot of, um, you know, eyewitnesses of the situation but basically what the facts are is that over 600 fans were injured. Uh, 39 Juventus fans lost their life. And uh, there were rumors that... Well, not rumors because there's video evidence. But there were a number of Liverpool fans that were um, basically attempting to block off the area so that Juve fans couldn't escape the rubble. And uh, oh people God. that survived had to crawl over the carnage and escape it was horrendous and uh that sounds horrific doesn't sound like a football match no and uh in the aftermath 34 fans were arrested from both sides after this obviously the ua fans on the other side see what happened and then fans from the opposite section are running over to retaliate against the liverpool fans police are you know everywhere trying to break this up so 34 fans were arrested and in the when it all went to court 14 Liverpool supporters were convicted of manslaughter. No, convicted oh of my manslaughter. God. So Convicted. So they were convicted of manslaughter. 14, um, 
14 people, including one, um, I think one police officer from Brussels was um, convicted of some crime. I don't remember what it was, but 14 people were convicted of manslaughter. And this thing was obviously because it was a Champions League final. There was cameras that caught a lot of it. Um, but UEFA calls it the darkest day in their history. And there is definitely, um, you know, no debate as to why they would say such a thing. One of the, you know, a tragedies of football. And one of the weirdest thing about it, which I actually didn't know. Obviously, I knew about the tragedy that happened. I didn't know this happened before the game. I thought this happened in result, in response to the game. This actually happened before the game kicked off. So they delayed the kickoff an hour. This happened about two hours before the match. So they delayed it another hour. And um, basically the reason why it was delayed and not canceled, as you would expect it to be canceled, is that UEFA and the Belgian or the Brussels Police Department thought that if the match was canceled, it would incite further violence. And that was their feeling at the time. I'm not sure if that's true or if that was just UEFA trying to cover it up and trying to have the match because they would lose a lot of money. I don't know. Maybe that's me being cynical. You know, it's just, it feels weird that they played the match, but also if they believe that it would have caused more violence if they had not, and it would have just been a complete, you know, free for all, then I understand that too. So, um, they did end I mean, up it just playing seems like a big mess of a situation, honestly. There really is no right answer, but, um, so they ended up playing the match an hour later, uh, both, um, captains um, gave a speech before the game telling people to settle down um, the players were actually not told that people died they were just told that there was um, you know a, a stampede and part of the stadium collapse the players did not know until after the game that people actually died so I think that definitely changes something for the players but there was actually fights still going on as the the first ball was kicked so even That's two hours, at, there was still chaos and still, you know, loud noise and commotion and um, truly horrendous. Obviously, you would never hold, you know, the, the players or the club itself responsible. It was obviously some fans that were, I don't even know what they were thinking, um, you know, but it definitely, uh, it was a bad reflection on all of English football and Liverpool particularly. So in the aftermath, um, all English clubs were banned from UEFA competitions indefinitely, which ended up being five years. So from the yep. 85 season to the 1990-91 season, Liverpool was banned an additional three years after that, which was reduced to one year. So they joined um, back in 91-92. And, um, and that was the ban on all English clubs just in case that there were other fans of other clubs at that match? No, I think, it, honestly, I'm not sure exactly why, but I think it was just to, uh, basically as like a retroactive punishment. I, I don't, I don't know exactly the details on the ruling, but, uh, well, yeah. Course, all so English... that verdict would, of course, affect Ian Rush, so he wouldn't be able to play Champions League football, or mm -hmm. so he thought. Well, um, so about that, he, Ian Rush played another season for Liverpool in, uh, 85-86. He scored, uh, 22 goals, had eight assists in 40 league games for Liverpool, so at a an okay season by his standards. And at that point, Liverpool was starting to feel the squeeze of the financial burden of not having European football. when that's, you know, obviously included in their budget. The fact that they will be in some form of European football. Now, back then, the, um, the Champions League or the, um, the European Cup was only for if you finish first place in your league. There was no second, third, fourth place. Uh, so second, third, fourth, and fifth, and sometimes sixth in some leagues, 
would go to the UEFA Cup, which is like analogous to the Europa League now. But anyway, some amount of European football, and obviously, obviously the Europa, uh, the UEFA Cup was a bigger deal then than the Europa League is now because of how hard it was to get into the European Cup. But yeah. Liverpool was feeling the squeeze, and Ian Rush saw an opportunity to obviously get back into European football because he was one of the world class players at the time, and you know it would be sort of, you know, he'd like to be in European football. And just to prove himself in another league, you know, personally, and, uh, you know, get the club some uh, some profit off of his sale, because he was worth quite a bit back then. So, and he decides um, pretty quickly that the club he wants to join is Juventus, sort of as, like, uh, you know, extending a rose branch um, to the club, because there was still a lot of bad blood between the two clubs. Obviously, you can't blame, you know... The, the team and the players, but, you know, it was still a fresh wound. And um, Ian Rush was actually op- uh, accepted with open arms <clears throat> when it happened. Uh, the Juventus board was very excited that he was interested. Um, when he landed in Turin, there was actually 5,000 fans waiting outside the airport, even though apparently it was a secret. They were not supposed to tell anyone. There was already 5,000 Juventus fans. And uh, everyone seemed to think this was a good idea, so... Ian Rush completes his move to Juventus, a 3.3 million pound deal, which at the time was the British record transfer, and uh, deservedly so. He was only 25 years old and thoroughly in his prime. And um, that moment, uh, just after he signed, not even a few days later, was his first um, bump in the road as a Juve player, because um, Juventus was going through some major regime changes at the time with uh, their manager, uh, Giovanni Trapattoni, who is probably the best, not probably, he is the best manager in Juventus' history, the only one coming close being Marcello Lippi. And um, after the um, Champions League victory in 85, um, Trapattoni retires, and a bunch of players end up leaving, retiring, and it was believed that... um, Michel Platini, Juventus legend, was going to retire. Um, obviously, one of the greatest players ever, one of the greatest players in Juve history. And uh, he actually decided to come back for another season when it was expected he was going to retire. And at the time in Serie A, they were only allowed to have uh, one non or two non-Italian players on their roster. And with Platini coming back, those two were Platini and a 22-year-old Michael Laudro, who was already on the squad. So there was no room for Ian Rush. So um, Juve was offered him to Lazio on a loan deal, but as per Ian Rush's request, they loaned him back to Liverpool. So he didn't actually suit up for Juve in their first season, no fault of his own. But um, as a side note, uh, do you want to guess who, uh, what players Liverpool brought in with his transfer money while getting him back on loan? Trying to remember. So this was 87, I believe, yeah? Uh, yeah, 1986. 86, 87. So, mm-hmm. um, that's a long time ago for Liverpool when you, when I think I'll tell you, it. I'll tell you who they brought in with his money. Cause I'm trying to think, cause like obviously, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, mm-hmm. the, the Liverpool I mostly think about when I think about Liverpool, mm-hmm. just because I'm young is, you know, like the Liverpool from the same era as, you know, that Manchester United team. Mm-hmm. You know, the two fa- like the, the mm-hmm. 2000, 
to um to around like 2009 the ronaldo mm-hmm. era i guess mm-hmm. you know so obviously it's none of those players but i i, I would i would say um who's a player yeah I, I you know what fuck it i have no idea <laughs> Luke, they brought in, in they brought in peter beardsley and john barnes and then got so, well, john barnes in, isn't too bad john barnes he's a, he's a legend he's one of the best players ever played for liverpool yeah so they brought in Barnsey and Peter Beardsley and kept yeah. Ian Rush for that first season. Which is so, pretty good. Uh, of course, they had no European football to flex that, but still. But I mean, for them, you know, the league, even back then, just winning the league was more important than anything else. So uh, yeah. just in case you were wondering, Ian Rush actually has a phenomenal season um, on loan from Juve, which is very weird to say because he never actually suited up for Juve. But in that season, he scored 30 goals in the league in 42 games with another seven assists. So he had um, a great season, even better season than the one previous. And now he is uh, 26 years old, I believe, so firmly in his prime. And uh, the hype has never been higher. And just as a side note, Liverpool finished second in the league and um, behind Everton. Everton actually won the league. And, Which I'm sure pissed them off. <laughs> yes. And yes, in case you were wondering, yes, Arsenal finished fourth and won the FA Cup because that's what Arsenal does. That is what happened. It's more important than the trophy. <laughs> fourth place. Although fourth place wasn't Champions League back then. That was still UEFA Cup. No, it wasn't. But still, fourth well, place. What, what, what was UEFA Cup? Was that like, was that like you know, so I top think- six? So I think UEFA. So the Champions League was just for the champions, and then UEFA Cup was two. I don't. It was. I think it was different for each league. But I think in like Italy and England, I think it was uh, two through five, and six was a play-in. But also there was no European football for any English club that year. So it was all about so getting your hands on any trophy. Also, conversely, Juve in their first year with new manager. Reno Marchese, they finished second in Serie A behind Maradona's Napoli. When Ian Rush finally makes his transfer, highly anticipated, he's greeted with open arms by the fans, um, by the organization. Um, so we're we're primed for success here. And um, so they were happy that he was there, even though obviously everything that had happened. Yeah, uh, Juventus, fan, Juventus fans were actually very kind to him. They were um, they were excited for him, obviously because of the great player that he was. And um, overall, everything seemed like it was headed in the right direction. Um, the energy was good. But um, now on to the season. So, um, famously, he is remembered as a flop at Juventus. And is this 100% correct? Not really. So obviously he was not the 25, 30, 40 goals a season guy that he was. He just came off a season where he scored 40 in all competitions for Liverpool. And uh, at Juve, he scored seven goals in 29 league matches, which definitely a little bit underwhelming. Now this was Serie A and this was the 80s. So that year, the Capo Cananiere, which is the top goal scorer in Italy, was Diego Maradona, but he only had 15 goals. And uh, even legends like Rude Hullet, Rude Hullet was sixth place on the uh, Golden Boot list, and he had nine goals, um, being the absolute unit that he was. So um, Ian Rush just seven goals in the league. It was the most on the team, 
I think it was 13 goals in all competitions. And um, he was the team's leading goal scorer in all competitions. He was a leading scorer in um, in the league in Serie A. But um, there was a number of reasons why he was not the Ian Rush that everyone expected him to be. Um, the most glaring error was the team around him. So Juve finished in sixth that season. And um, it was not a good season for them. They took a huge step backwards from their second place finish last year where they took Napoli to the edge. Um, They only won 11 games in the league out of 30 and they lost 10 games. Um, And they, they really had a problem scoring goals and it wasn't like it was rush missing a lot of chances. He wasn't playing to his absolute potential as you would expect for him. But overall watching him on the pitch, he wasn't horrible. Um, mainly the team just wasn't really in sync and from midfield to attack, there was not really that much of a creative force. Um, Michael Laudrup was not the player that we know from his days at Barcelona yet. Although, uh, in the next season after Rush leaves, he actually, that's when he really took off and had his best season when Juve and when Ian Rush left, Juve had no real striker and Michael Laudrup was kind of playing like a false nine. And he was phenomenal in that role. And that's when he really took off to become a star. But um, Ian Rush just said in interviews afterwards that um, that season at Juve was a transitional period, obviously coming from a great manager like Trapattoni. It was sort of like when Manchester United lost Alex Ferguson. Um, They were sort of struggling for an identity, even though they had a lot of the same players. And even like Juve's, you know, their captain, their rock at the back, um, Gaetano Shirea, it was his last season at Juve. He was, I think, 36 years old. He was way up there in age. And um, the midfield had just lost Platini. And, you know, they were searching for an identity. There was a lot of 0-0 draws away to smaller teams like Como and like, you know, Avellino, which you wouldn't even, they're probably both in Serie C at this point, but they were in Serie A back then. Um, I haven't heard of them, so I'm sure they're probably pretty low down. Mm-hmm. Como's a great vacation spot if you ever want to go there. It's beautiful. I think uh, George Clooney has a house in Como. <laughs> great vineyards. Um, anyway, that's my plug. But um, So I don't think it's fair necessarily to say that Rush was bad at Juventus. He certainly wasn't the player that we expected him to be. And um, there was definitely a lot of um, negativity coming out of England for a multitude of reasons. I mean, I think the English media is sort of sensationalized anyway. They sort of have a lot of tabloid-like headlines that come out there. Uh, one of I'm which... I'm sure they were not happy that all of their clubs were out of the, of the uh, yeah. European competitions. That probably They're, didn't sit well with them. Yeah, and I think that it sort of weighed on him a lot, the fact that there was so much... Um, so many people that were um, sort of unjustly criticizing him or at least being extremely harsh to him. Like there was headlines in England that came out that said uh, there was a line that he said, it's like living in a foreign country out here, which he claims that he never said. And um, it was taken completely out of context and it was like him joking, but they made it seem like he was an idiot. And he was like, well, I didn't expect it to be like a different country when I moved to a different country. And uh, there was a lot of headlines. There was also they, not, they seriously could not get that joke. That's actually ridiculous. 
And, uh, well, he didn't, yeah, it was, like, complicated. It was, like, sort of paraphrased, and, like, they basically took what he said and made it out to be something else, but that's nothing new from any sort of news outlet. And um, there was also rumors that when he was going back to Liverpool, because, obviously, after the season, he made a move back to Liverpool permanently, not just alone. And people said that, basically, the, the, the narrative out there was that he went to Juve, his life wasn't fun. It wasn't easy for him. And he wanted to go back home. There was rumors that he felt homesick, which he didn't say. He actually enjoyed the life in Italy, at least to what he says in interviews. And um, But there were a few problems that stood in his way. And um, one of which, a huge issue being the language barrier. So Michael Laudrup was the only player on the team that spoke any English at all. So it was really difficult for him to communicate with his teammates not to mention, he's obviously someone that's never lived anywhere outside of the UK. So just sort of a culture shock to a certain degree or just settling into a different country. Also, the league, the way that the league was played, it was a lot more, um, I guess you could say, the leagues were a lot different from each other. Like the differences in the way that the game was played in different countries was a lot stronger back then, especially with a lot of the national teams like in Italy at the time, and especially, you know, even earlier, it was stronger. Like, Italian teams played a certain way. English teams played a certain way. German teams played a certain way. So, he went from the standard 4-4-2 Liverpool setup, two wingers, big man, little man striker, and solid defensively, to um, the Italian game where they had a back three with a sweeper, and then wingbacks that played sort of like asymmetrically like one would press and the other would come back and then in a sort of 352 slash 343 and um the way defenses lined up was a lot different you know obviously playing against basically only back threes that if you're playing a small team it's a back five and it's probably a back eight with everyone in the box uh playing you physically trying to make sure that you don't score and um, also something that people don't really talk about too much, and it's still present today. Um, there was a quote that he said. So he said this when Aaron Ramsey went to Juventus. His advice to him, he said, uh, the most important thing in Italy is that you have to be confident in what you do. If I went to Italy now, I would have told them, I'm Ian Rush. I'm the best footballer in the world. If I had done that at Liverpool, other teams in the league would say, okay, let's see how good you are. It's completely different from the English way. The English help each other. So, um, basically, and it's still true to a certain extent, you can see the different attitudes and footballing philosophies. Whereas, like, you saw, like, you know, Manchester United just won the other day. They won 9-0 at Southampton. And Southampton also lost 9-0 to Leicester the year before. Oh, so, in yeah, England... That's another thing to talk about. <laughs> so, in England, there's sort of a, a more hard-working philosophy where it's like in england it's about physical strength speed toughness and always giving 100 percent effort and it's like if you're not giving 100 percent effort at any second or if you like pass around the back you're up seven zero you start passing around the back it's seen as like insulting it's like you're saying to them you're not even on my level you know it's not even worth my energy to try to play your game whereas you know when you beat someone they can actually see the virtue in you know what, they were trying the whole game and they just, they were better than us. They just gave us the business. Meanwhile, in Italy, 
if you're up 4-0 and you're still attacking and, and making runs in behind and, you know, playing progressive football, you're up 4-0 in the 85th minute. Somebody's in, th- in those days, somebody was trying to break your legs. Like in Italy, if you do that, it's seen as you're embarrassing us. You know, it's sort of like once the game is so out of hand, it's 4-0, 5-0. In Italy, the way is sort of like, all right, let's just see this game out. We both know who won. And let's just make it to the next game without embarrassing you. So there's subtle differences in sort of the philosophy of the game. And I think that nuance takes a little bit of time. Now it's not as pronounced. Now there's a lot more, you know, international, you know, movement between players, between clubs, between ideas. There's a lot of managers that don't come from, you know, come from different backgrounds um, nowadays. And um, for sure. And I especially think, you know, when you think about it, you know, just in general, the expansion of all the various leagues and how big things have gone, it's just really difficult to sort of have that identity with each league. But we're starting to see that recover now. But back then it was definitely stronger. And also, I mean, the sort of the the curse, as it was known back then, for, I'm going to say British players, I'm going to lump Rush in there, even though he's Welsh, obviously, British players in general, for a British player to move outside of the Premier League, it was... Even up until a few years ago, it was seen as something that was difficult to do, hard to adjust. Basically, until you saw like Jaden Sancho and Chris Smalling to Roma, and those sort of moves that it seems even when like when David Beckham went to Real Madrid, yeah, there's there's very few historical examples. I mean, the the main one before Ian Rush, which Ian Rush is used as a cautionary tale for many years after, even if it wasn't a hundred percent just. Um, the big example of a success was the great John Charles's move from Leeds to Juventus in the 1950s, where he was, uh, he's still one of the icons of the Juve club, and he was a six foot four center back slash striker um, that basically shaped a lot of the philosophy of Juve and was a pivotal figure in the club in that time period. And um, one of the greatest Welsh players to ever play so there was a small precedent but even at the time even in the 80s and 90s it was still pretty abnormal for a British player to move outside of the Premier League it was still seen as a big risk and I also think that nowadays they put a lot of effort into integrating international players into the you know the culture and the styles and just getting them literally getting them integrated with living in a new country and just everything that comes with that. So I think that's been a, so, yeah, that's been a huge, you know, area of focus for clubs. And it's really shown because now you see players, you know, even young players, which is even more difficult when you're young and, um, you know, moving to completely different countries they've never even been to and having success. So also the language barrier is definitely not as much of an issue now because, First of all, English is spoken at every Champions League game, so most players in Europe have some understanding of English, and a lot of players just have learned other languages from playing in other leagues throughout their career. So it's pretty rare that you have a team where nobody speaks basically any common European language. And also, so if you're yeah. going to sum up this transfer, mm-hmm. um, how, how would how would you best summarize this? Like the impact of the Ian mm-hmm. Rush transfer, if there was any. And 
how, how would you say it possibly has affected future Juve business? So um, in 19, August of 1988, Ian Rush um, requested a transfer back to Liverpool. He completed a 2.7 million pound move, which was actually the British record for an incoming transfer at the time. Um, so Juve recuperated not all, but a good amount of the money they spent on Ian Rush. Uh, so not a complete failure in that respect. And uh, there was also rumors that Ian Rush wanted to go back to Liverpool because he was homesick or because he wasn't enjoying his time in Juve. Uh, that simply wasn't true. According to him, he was convinced by new manager Kenny Dalglish, who was his teammate for um, his entire career up until then. He became manager, player manager, and then manager. And uh, he convinced him to come back with the new um, sort of philosophy and a new system he was bringing in. And he thought it was, you know, a good time to go back to Liverpool. So as far as how did this impact Juve? I think it was, I mean, it was an ambitious move at the time for all parties involved because of what happened. I think it was sort of a low risk, high reward move also, which I know it's, it's funny to say that it's ambitious and also low risk, high reward. But I think it was low risk because at the least you were doing was um, sort of bridging the gap between Juve and Liverpool. At the least, it was sort of a nice gesture and just giving him a shot in the team. And I think that shouldn't be understated. Um, but also, the irony of it, I think, is the fact that um, the season after, um, Juve fired their manager that guided them to sixth place. And uh, they hired Dino Zoff as their manager, legendary goalkeeper. And uh, under Zoff, basically a lot of the parts that they, a lot of the players that they had brought in the previous summer with Ian Rush, there were seven new signings that summer. Um, a lot of those players actually started to to gel and, you know, develop chemistry. So Juve actually finished in second place the year, um, the following year. And um, the, the, the irony of it is the fact that the thing they were missing most that would have, you know, catapulted them to potentially being champions or competing more strongly to be champions of Italy was the fact that they had no striker, which is hilarious because you think about the fact that they had Ian Rush on their roster the year before. And if they were creating that sort of chances for him, you'd think that he'd be able to score well. And I, I do believe that if Ian Rush had wanted to stay, which I don't blame him for wanting to leave, but I believe that if they had that same roster plus Ian Rush, I think they would have been a much more dangerous side. And I think that he would have probably gotten 20 goals in all competitions. Um, and that's that following season, the 88-89 season, um, Juve also, they were in the UEFA Cup semifinals. They lost to Napoli in extra time after two legs. And um, that was the same season. Napoli walloped Bayern 4-2 <laughs> in the UEFA Cup. So definitely different times than we have now. But um, Italy was a powerhouse back then, especially with those those Milan teams. Inter was a force. Napoli with Maradona was obviously, it was that's the best Napoli has ever been and probably will ever be. Um, so yeah, I think, I think Juve fans in general believe that if Ian Rush had stayed with the team for longer, that he would have found success individually and the team probably would have been better. But uh, I think generally Juve fans look at that time favorably. I don't think anyone 
has any disdain for Ian Rush. I think he left on pretty amicable terms. And um, as far as Juve are concerned, it was an experiment that didn't really pan out properly. And uh, Ian Rush himself has said that um, he looks back on the time fondly. He said that he, um, he grew a lot as a person and as a player. And just experiencing a different league, it probably added a lot to his game. And, um, yeah, he came back and had a lot of success with Liverpool. He scored over 100 more goals with Liverpool after his return, finishing as their all-time top scorer, finished as Wales' all-time top scorer currently. Although, if Gareth Bale wants to uh, go back to his original form, then maybe Gareth Bale could pass that. But as things stand, <laughs> he's still number one. So, um, yeah, overall, I think the perception of the move is definitely – a lot more harsh than um you know the reality of it he definitely struggled it was difficult but the team also struggled and it was sort of you know larger than just him he also had some great goals he scored the winner in uh, uefa cup qualifying against torino in the uh, at the stadio comunale which is a huge derby and was even bigger back then um he scored a beautiful chip in a 3-1 victory against Napoli, who were the champions that year, or the the, uh, the defending champions. Milan won the year that year, won the league that year. Um, he had his moments. If you watch the highlights, you could see there's a video on YouTube of all his 13 goals. It's not a very long video. <laughs> but you could see that he still, he had a lot of quality. And like, you could see that he was sort of, was still it, it's not easy to figure out how to play in a new league like that and um, yeah I don't really know what else to say I think that he was not great by any means but I think that he definitely um, you know he definitely got a bad rap from because the perception of him in England is that it was a complete failure and he you know walked back to Liverpool with his tail between his legs and it was a failure and he was humiliated when really that's not the case. If he had that season, if he only scored seven goals in the league in England and finished with 13 in all competitions, then if he did that in England, it would be seen as, wow, he had a terrible season. Because his worst season in England, I believe, was about 22 goals, or at least his worst season when he was still in his prime. So if he did that in England, yeah, it would be a terrible season for him. But considering the circumstances and considering the way the game is played in Serie A, which a lot of English people still don't really understand the way Serie A is played now, even though the game is more global than ever. Um, yeah, but still, no matter what you can, you have to say that it was an interesting transfer. There will never be another like it for many reasons. 